Welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Brain. Today, I have a doctor with me. Yay! <laughs> so for the um, first time on here, um, I have a legit medical professional who's going to be able to talk us through some of the things that he sees uh, here. I've got Dr. Matt Bruckle with Total Access Urgent Care here in St. Louis. Dr. Bruckle, you want me to call you Dr. Bruckle? Can I call you Matt? Like how? Yeah, I mean, if you're going to be my patient, um, you should call me Dr. Bruckle. If we're if we're meeting uh, socially, then Matt works perfectly. All right, I'll just call you Dr. Matt out of respect. Let's I love that. Sounds good. <laughs> so, Dr. Matt, how long? Well, tell us a little bit about yourself, your education background, uh, what you do here at Total Access Urgent Care, besides own the place. Yeah, okay. sounds good. So, uh, I went to medical school here in St. Louis at Washington University. I finished medical school uh, last millennium in uh, 1997. Uh, so I'm a WOMS 97. I did uh, was chief resident at University of Maryland in Baltimore in emergency medicine and finished that in the year 2000. And uh, I'm a board-certified emergency medicine physician, and I've worked uh, in the field for 20-plus uh, years. Um, currently, I work at Total Access Urgent Care. I'm the founder and uh, president of Total Access Urgent Care. And uh, we are excited uh, for the services that we're providing here in St. Louis. We're looking to change the landscape of healthcare in St. Louis and make, make it better for everyone. That's awesome. That's awesome. And how long, well, not how long, um, how many locations do you guys have here? Yeah, currently we have 17. We're, we're in a growth phase, and by the end of 2018, we should be at uh, 25 locations. Oh, wow. That's awesome. So what do you guys, what, what makes you stand out? So my uh, reason for starting Total Access uh, occurred in my experiences in the emergency department. Nobody likes going to the ER, and, and they don't like going to the ER for several reasons. It, it takes too long, it costs too much, it's too complicated, and then they're mean to you. Yeah, yeah <laughs> definitely. So, I've heard that one before. So it doesn't have to be that way, and I tried to fix many different ERs in my 20-year career, and uh, didn't, didn't do such a good job at, at being able to fix the ER. So I figured that the way to solve the problem uh, was to start my own uh, office. And it's called Total Access Urgent Care. And we perform most of the services of the ER. And we perform it uh, f in a fast, friendly, and affordable way uh, that, that changes the, the dynamic in, in, uh, in healthcare in St. Louis. So for instance, some of the services that we perform at Total Access that we also perform in the ER um, are cost one-tenth as much. So 10 cents on the dollar for the same exact test, same exact service. So, so it doesn't have to be difficult. It doesn't have to be expensive. It, it can be easy, straightforward. And, uh, and we only hire staff that are nice to our patients. Oh, yeah. Kindness is definitely something that you guys are known for. Um, I've spoken with uh, Ashley here who... Forget her position. What's Ashley's position? She's the uh, director of marketing and uh, the patient experience. Oh, yeah. Okay. So when we were talking, she was telling me that kindness from the receptionist, the people up front, whenever they greet a patient coming in, it's very, very important to them. So she's right. on them about that. And it reflects in you guys' reviews. You guys got a lot of five-star ratings. So right. that's what we aim, you aim to do. We aim to please. We're awesome. here to make patients' lives better and not make their bad day worse. <laughs> okay, so the reason that I wanted to sit down with you and talk today is because we live in St. Louis, Missouri, the STD capital of the world, <laughs> last I checked. And what I wanted to do is just kind of get 
your perspective. I haven't had any medical professional, well, I've had medical professionals on, but not a doctor. These were people who are in the research field. Um, but I wanted to get the perspective of that what you see being on the other side of this. So I would be considered, I have, I'm the patient perspective, considering I have herpes and now that I've had it for six years now, I have a lot of questions that in hindsight I would have been able to, I would have been able to benefit from had I gone back and been able to, knowing what I know now, be able to have these questions to ask upon my own diagnosis. So um, first let's just get started with uh, the most common question that I get from people. Um, eh, that's not, that's terrible. All right, Dr. Matt, so tell us, what is herpes? Uh, so herpes is a clinical disease that's uh, caused by a herpes virus. So a herpes virus is an infection, small little, tiny little virus that you can't see, uh, that causes a cluster of painful sores um, on your body. So oral labial herpes causes uh, sores um, just right around your lips. Um, and genital herpes typically causes uh, genital sores in your in your privates. Okay, and who typically gets herpes? Anyone can get herpes, but but sure, but uh, it becomes uh, much more common in sexually um, uh, sex sec, eight adults of sexual uh, maturity. So teenagers, uh, young adults are, are the largest group of of patients who who are getting new infections with herpes. But obviously, once you have herpes, you have herpes forever. So, so you have um, older people um, that have herpes as well. Um, they just didn't contract it uh, recently. Okay. And how common is herpes? Very common. So most people um, have been exposed to herpes um, at some point in their life. Um, when we talk about uh, oral labial herpes, so HSV, herpes simplex virus type 1 infections that are, that are sores around the mouth, Somewhere between 50 and 80% of all people, including kids, are positive for um, HSV type 1. When it comes to genital herpes, which is more commonly what's called herpes simplex virus type 2, uh, about 1 in 6 um, uh, people have, have genital herpes. And uh, there's about 3 million new cases um, per year. So about 1% of the population um, is diagnosed with genital herpes um, every year. Yeah. And so my question about this is, well, are cold sores herpes? Yes. Now, if I have a cold sore that is considered HSV-1 orally, I can pass that on to the genitals. But how do we get HSV type 2 out of this? So same, same way. So whenever you make contact on any part of the skin, um, you, you have the risk of, of transmitting the infection um, to anywhere on the body. So, if, so if, you have a, um, if you have a cold sore around your mouth and you touch it with your finger and then touch your eye, you can expose your eye um, to the herpes virus and then subsequently develop uh, herpes in your eye. So when you, when you have um, uh, oral labial herpes and you perform oral sex on someone, you can transmit herpes type 1 to the, to the genitals and vice versa. If somebody has um, sores in their privates, herpes type 2, and uh, has an oral uh, sexual exposure, they can then uh, contract genital herpes um, on, on their face or, the, or, the, or their mouth. Okay. 
And given that herpes is so common, and we're talking specifically about herpes type 1, herpes type 2, why is it considered an STD if, just like you just mentioned, I could touch my lip and then touch my eye, and now I have eye herpes. So it's skin-to-skin contact, but why do we consider it to be an, a sexually transmitted disease most commonly? Well, herpes type 2 is, is commonly considered a, a sexually transmitted disease. Herpes type 1 is, is, is not necessarily a sexually transmitted disease, especially since there are a lot of children um, who can develop cold sores. And, and you can develop cold sores any time in life. You know, if, you're, if your parent has a cold sore and they kiss you, um, then that transmission um, will, will then make you positive and, and possibly make you have a cold sore in the future. We all know that's not a sexually transmitted encounter, and so um, the most common, the most commonly uh, referred to sexual encounters are are having to do with HSV type two, herpes type two, which pr- most commonly produces the sores in the privates. Okay, and is there a real difference between the two? No, there. I mean, there there are subtle differences between the two, but but only a only a biochemist or or a um, so, someone with specific uh, viral testing would, would be able to tell you exactly um, wh- which virus was one or the other. Clinically, you can't tell the difference. Okay. The sores of herpes type 1 and the sores of herpes type 2 uh, look, look indistinguishably be uh, the same. Okay. All right. So you're saying that someone who's doing the research or looking at it under a microscope can tell, okay, these are two different strands of herpes. So why do we even bother differentiating between the two? Is that just for like peace of mind or what? Uh, I think I, I think it has to do with um, with probably a social norm or a social taboo. Um, if we if we lump the two together, um, and I you know I know many children who have cold sores. Um, you know we, we don't want we, we don't want the social stigma of um, infections affecting the privates. Mm-hmm. Um, to be lumped in with infections infecting the lips of, of our children. Okay. And so are we able to look at someone and just tell, oh, that's herpes? Like if I see someone that just has some redness around their lips, is it safe to say that that's herpes? Or is this something that needs to only be concern- confirmed through testing? Yeah, it's, it, it, is a, it is a clinical infection. So you can tell by looking at um, someone's sores if it's uh, highly likely to be herpes. And typically, it's somebody with experience um, and medical clinical training um, that, that's going to make that decision. Um, once you've seen many cases of herpes, you, you are rec- able to recognize the pattern and the typical look of the sores um, that ma- make it obvious that, it, that it's herpes. So what we're looking for is a cluster. So not just one bump, not just two bumps, but a cluster of uh, sores that originally start as red bumps and then develop uh, clear blisters or vesicles on top of them. That, vis- that vesicle or blister will then pop and you'll develop a, a painful uh, sore, open sore underneath that will then scab over and dry out. And we've all had, we've all had chicken pox or, or at least um, prior to the vaccine, everyone had chicken pox and everyone's familiar with the, the look of, of typical chick- chicken pox infections. Um, and chickenpox is a herp, one of the herpes viruses um, in the herpes family, and those sores look very similar to general herpes. Um, but but yes, once you once you've seen herpes sores, know what they look like, know what to look for, 
um, you can then look at the next one and determine that, yes, it's very likely to be herpes. Okay. And if the if herpes goes untreated, can it potentially cause harm or could it be fatal? Uh, herpes in general is not going to be fatal. Now, you can develop some some infections from herpes. So, um, for instance, you know, if a, if a baby is born and part of the birth process exposes the baby um, to herpes, the baby can develop um, herpes in the blood, herpes in the brain um, that, that can actually kill them. So, so it, you can't say that herpes is not um, life-threatening, but, but for most adults, uh, herpes is not life-threatening and in general causes painful uh, sores and lesions on their body um, that are socially uncomfortable and, and slightly physical, physically um, uncomfortable, um, but don't typically cause anything other than, than just isolated sores. All right. And um, is this something that just kind of, do the symptoms just go away or is treatment mandatory? Like if I want, let's say I'm having an outbreak where sores are visible and pain is present, am I able to just muscle through it and eventually uh, just the blisters just go away and the pain goes away or do I have to take medication for it? Yeah, typically the, the sores will go away on their own. They last um, anywhere between uh, 10 days and, and three weeks. Uh, and they go through the process that I previously described. Um, if you take medicine for this, for these sores, and you start the medicine as soon as possible, um, your sores um, will resolve much more quickly um, than without the medicine. But either way, your sores will resolve on their own. Okay. And how do we know for a fact that we have herpes? Well, the only way to know for sure with absolute certainty is to be tested. Um, so if you have sores with these clear fluid filled blisters, uh, I can actually uh, wipe a cotton swab on the sores, break open some of the blisters um, and take some of the, the fluid that's contained within those blisters and then send it to the lab. And the lab will give me a, a definite positive confirmatory test that you have evidence of herpes in this swab. The other way to test for it uh, is to have a blood test um, where we test for the antibody response. And the antibody response is part of your immune system's response as a uh, subsequent reaction to your infection of herpes. And that process takes um, you know, a week or two for these antibodies to develop. So if you develop a sore on day one, if you check the blood, um, you will not have an antibody response to that sore. But after um, after two weeks, um, you should have an antibody response, and we would be able to tell that there you had possibly been exposed to or had herpes infection based on antibody presence in your bloodstream. All right. And then, uh, well, real quick, let me backtrack. So we talked off of the podcast, we talked about the healing process or how our bodies fight the virus. Can we go back through that? I have the cartoon analogy in my mind, but let's give yours first and then I can dumb it down for anyone. So I have a herpes outbreak. How is my body fighting it off naturally? Sure. So the, the main component of your immune system or your white blood cells. White blood cells uh, produce um, a antibody or make an antibody um, that's directed specifically to the virus. So once we localize and identify the virus in the bloodstream, the white blood cells will, will produce an antibody response specific to that uh, virus. They'll, the antibodies will be secreted into the serum of the blood and will bind to um, the virus 
which makes it easier for the white blood cells to eat and um, kill the, the virus and eliminate it from our bloodstream. All right, so the dumbed-down version I gave, and you can just tell me if this is right or not, is the white blood cells essentially see the virus and they, like, jump onto it as a blob and then transform to this, like, merged virus white blood cell thing that can go on and fire off some merged form of what the white blood cell does and what the virus does and uses that to combat the virus. Yeah, it, it's just a way, how, how can we kill this virus? And, and we do it with a combination of both the white blood cell and the antibody. Got it. So like the scientific version, well, not scientific version, but like it would be the equivalent of being attacked by a foreign alien or something. And we, it's an alien invasion. We knock out an alien, bring it back to the lab for research, understand it. And then we're like, oh, okay, this is its strengths. This is its weakness. These are its strengths and weaknesses. Here's what we can use against it to keep it at bay. Correct. Got it. Yeah, absolutely. All right, now, fast forwarding, now that we've gone back and gotten that taken care of, uh, you said that the blood testing, um, it, it would take a while before the antibodies show up in your blood. Um, question about that in particular is with the blood test, if there are antibodies in your system, um, you have to be over a certain number in order to be considered positive. So uh, the information that I have in front of me is that if your blood, if the antibody count is below 0.90, you're considered negative. And if you're above 1.10, you're considered positive with that little, that range between 9 and 1.10 being uh, equivocal, which is just a maybe. If I am under that point nine, uh, that point nine zero antibody count on the low end, let's say I'm point zero one for my antibody count. Can I still infect someone with the herpes virus? Well, the first question is, um, if, if you have a blood antibody result that's less than the uh, definitive positive on the blood test, are you still positive for the virus? I think the safe answer, the simple answer is, if you have a positive result at any number um, for this test, that you should consider yourself positive for the virus. Just because you have a small amount of virus in your bloodstream doesn't mean that you don't have the virus. It, it probably means that you're either at the beginning or the end of your exposure to that to that infection. So, so if you just start making antibody to the virus, and you measure after the after the first week, and and you don't have enough um, antibody in your bloodstream to be over the 0.9, you you have virus in your blood from that virus. You have antibody in that blood from the from that virus. Um, it's just that you haven't made the full amount of, of antibody at that time. And so your number is going to be lower than the, the bottom end, end of the range. On the, on the flip side, if it's been, you know, 70 years since you've been exposed to the virus and you were exposed and you were positive for antibody your whole life and you haven't seen the virus in a very long time, maybe your levels of that antibody have, have dropped down and gone below the, the range of, of positive antibody response. And so you you still have antibody, but but you don't have it in the range. So either either way, if you're positive for the test, even if the number's below the the 
official range, you probably are positive um, for an exposure um, to the virus. You may not have had a clinical infection at that time. Okay. And with this testing, um, herpes is not a part of the standardized STD screening, correct? It is not. So why is that? Um, so a lot of people are walking around that have an antibody to herpes, either type 1 or type 2, and have never had a sore. They've never had a lesion. They've never had a clinical herpes infection. And so to tell somebody that they've been exposed to herpes in the past may not mean they have the virus in their body. It, it, it definitely means they've been exposed. It may mean they, they currently have an, a, a, a clinical infection with, with herpes, uh, but it just provides um, some confusion for the patient. So I think the best way to approach these are if, if you've never had an outbreak, if you've never had sores, if you've never had lesions, understand that, that it's possible you've been exposed in the past, but you, but you don't have herpes. If you develop sores or lesions, um, then you should get tested and treated, and, and your test results at that point will, will be um, clinically significant because now you have something to base the, the testing on as opposed to just um, um, an asymptomatic person. Okay. Is that how you typically would present this information to a patient? Yeah, if anyone ever wants to be tested, we will absolutely test them. It's very easy, straightforward, and simple to do. Um, but but the problem is um, the results can be confusing and difficult to interpret if you've never had a, a sore or an outbreak. Okay. And then, so what's the best way, I mean, this may be for doctors listening as well, what have you found is the best way to present this information given the different emotional responses that a new a newly diagnosed patient could uh, have. Uh, whenever you're discussing a, a sexually transmitted infection or disease with a patient, um, it, it always carries a great emotional weight. Um, so I think the important thing is for, for us to think about how the patient is going to receive this information and process the information and present it in a way um, that that is serious, um, that's deliberate, but that's also calm and um, and couched in a in a way that that allows the patient to receive the information as easily as possible. I think that that's a good answer because it that's kind of what we want to do when disclosing to someone new. You want to be calm. If you're freaking out about it or shameful about it, then that feeling is what the other person who's receiving the information is going to also have. Um, for anyone who doesn't receive that information that they're newly diagnosed with an STI well, uh, what do you think that these people should know? If they're uh, not experiencing any symptoms at all, they come in and they're just like, oh, you know, I'm, let me get tested for herpes. Like everything's fine. They don't think they have it. And then you give them this information. Do you feel that uh, it helps more so than doesn't help? Uh, let me re-ask that question because that was a terrible way of putting it. If I don't have symptoms, I come to you and I go, hey, test me for everything, even herpes. You test me for herpes. It comes back that I tested positive for herpes and now all of a sudden I'm depressed, suicidal. What is something useful for me to know? Or how would you, what resources would you direct me to in order to help me get through that? 
Um, it's a it's a big question. That's a lot of information. But but the um, the several ways that that we should address this are, are first of all, if somebody comes back with a positive test for the antibodies, so they've been exposed in the past or they have an infection, um, we should reassure them that if they haven't had a um, a sore or an outbreak previously, and we can go through them and kind of give them ideas as to you know, hey, have you ever had have you ever had painful sores in your privates? Have you ever had cold sores? Have you ever had um, painful red bumps with clear fluids. I mean, kind of describe it to them. If they've never had that before, then I think the, the best approach is to reassure them that this is an incredibly common exposure, an incredibly common event. And the likelihood is that unless they're in a high risk um, sexual relationship currently where they might have recently been exposed, um, their chance of having a, a sore or a herpes outbreak it's very small, mm-hmm. um, and and they should do nothing different. They should ch- not change their their uh, relationships or their interactions um, at this time. They should they should wait and and observe and watch and and remain calm and and um, try to approach this in a balanced, logical way. Now, if they ever develop, do develop any symptoms, um, then let's treat it um, with regard to the symptoms as opposed to um, to the antibodies. And, uh, and at that point, there are all kinds of, of mechanisms or precautions that can be done in order to protect them and their partners uh, from a further spread of the, of the infection or the illness. Got it. Now, one of the, obviously besides the pain, the physical pain of having herpes, uh, the stigma is something that people typically struggle to deal with. What can we do to lessen our, just really lessen the negativity of the stigma? Well, I understand that, that, that patients that are newly diagnosed with herpes, you're not the only one that has herpes. There are a lot of people out there, a lot of friends and family, colleagues, neighbors uh, that you know that have herpes and you just don't know it. Um, and most people with herpes are able to live very happy full, successful, uh, functional lives, um, and they're able to have sexual relationships with, with uh, very little effect or neg- negative outcome. They're, they're able to have babies. Um, they're able to carry on with their lives and work and happiness and, and do everything that, that they would have previously done um, prior to, to being diagnosed with herpes. You know, the medicine that we have these days for herpes is actually quite, quite uh, impressive. And most people, again, have either zero or, or a few sore outbreaks their entire life. Um, but when, if, you, if you do develop a herpes infection, we can give you medicine that will shorten the duration of the infection and certainly also shorten the severity of the infection. Um, but patients who have frequent outbreaks or more outbreaks than just um, a handful of their lives, we can even do chronic suppressive therapy so they can actually receive the medicine every day if needed in order to keep the herpes away. Okay. And then um, one of the things that I wanted to ask you as well was as far as vaccines are concerned for people who currently don't have herpes, given it's common, uh, given as common as it is, is there a vaccine currently in the works that you're aware of or being worked on or anything that can cure herpes at all? Yeah, there's, there's no vaccine for herpes currently. Um, you know, there may be there may be some research uh, in the works um, for trying to develop uh, vaccines um, for the future. 
uh, certainly if we if we find out any information that that will uh, make make it available to patients, we'll we'll uh, we'll educate educate patients at that time. But at this at this point, you know, prevention is the key. Um, once you have the infection, uh, treatment is very successful, and um, and you know avoid avoidance is the is the main main goal at this point. Okay, and then um, I think that that was everything that I had. I mean, I've got I can ask questions for days, just given um, the number of people that I've spoken to. Um, the questions that I asked you were just some ones that different people have shared their concerns for. Uh, just how the virus is contracted. Uh, oh, there's one more. So viral shedding. Uh, herpes, obviously, directly skin-to-skin contact. Can I pass herpes from an object to a person? Uh, well, typically it comes from human to human. You're not going to get herpes from a toilet seat or a, or a, a sink in a bathroom um, or a door handle. Um, but, but if you touch the herpes rash, um, there is a high likelihood that you can then transmit that rash to whatever was touched. Um, so, you know, the key here, when we talk about sexually transmitted diseases, and we haven't mentioned this previously, but, but it needs to be mentioned probably a hundred times, use condoms, you know, condoms and, and latex, um, uh, barriers are, are very effective mechanisms to prevent not only the infection and transmission of herpes, but but all of the other uh, sexually transmitted diseases uh, that we refer to, as well as preventing uh, pregnancy. So condoms are the key to uh, avoidance and uh, limiting the transmission. Now, if you do have a part of the body that comes in contact with another part of the body that's infected or, or previously is, is infected and this asymptomatic shedding is, is certainly a, an issue, you, you can um, be exposed to and have a successful transmission of herpes even if you're wearing a condom. So, you know, people, people get general herpes not, not just on their, uh, on their penis, but, but anywhere in the private area. Um, so we're talking like the groin area correct. between the legs, I don't know what the body part is called. But correct. Anywhere there around the anus, correct. things like that. Any, any place that makes contact with, with the virus um, certainly is susceptible and, and um, possibly going to, to get uh, a, a new rash or a new exposure in that location. All right. So if I'm someone who thinks I've been exposed to herpes, what do you recommend I do immediately? Um, so if you've been exposed, um, uh, there's not a ton you can do. But but if you ever have a question or ever are confused and don't know what to do, come come and see us. We're, we're happy to help you. Certainly if you have a new, a new sore, a new bump, a new rash, that you're worried is is herpes. The sooner you come see us, the more the more likely we're going to be able to give you a successful uh, treatment of a medicine uh, to suppress and treat and make this um, new new rash or new infection go away. And education is a big part of what we do. We talk with the patients. We tell them what we think the infection is, how we're going to treat them, uh, what what the issues are um, for both now and in the future. And and we give you we give you guidance as to as to how we should handle this going forward. Um, we're able to handle all the uh, medication dispensing and and uh, the education and the treatment and the resources that that you need for both the suspicion but also the infection. Perfect. I said I wasn't gonna sit here and do like a Q and A style thing, but that just worked out <laughs> that way. Um, this has been a very very informative conversation, and I want to ask you now if there's anything that 
I haven't asked you that you feel is important to this episode or this show topic at all? Uh, I think I think the topic is fantastic. I, I think it's important to, to talk about these uh, issues that are real and get them into the public eye. Educate as many patients on this as possible. Um, we, we certainly have not done a good job if, if patients don't know about these infections. Mm-hmm. So the more patients know, um, the better they're able to make decisions um, that, that protect them and their families um, so they can have a successful, happy, healthy life. Um, I, th- I think all of these sexually transmitted diseases are by definition preventable. Um, obviously, um, condoms are the, are the way to go. Um, early treatment um, is, uh, is absolutely available and e- easy to do. And, uh, and I appreciate you bringing, bringing these conversations to the forefront to make sure that we're discussing them, educating patients, and, and uh, making this world a better place. I appreciate that. And um, you and I got to speak about this before, but for anyone who's new listening, um, one of the reasons that this podcast, Something Positive for Positive People, was started was because I have herpes. And I was in a conversation with someone who also had it. And this, when she was newly diagnosed, it just kind of rocked her world. Everything was going well for her. And eventually she just needed somebody to talk to and wanted to uh, get feedback from a male perspective because she was seeing someone who was very indifferent on it and it's like the biggest concern that I've seen people have when they're newly diagnosed is who's going to want to be with me now that I have herpes and in this particular case you know her significant other was like oh well it's fine however she confessed to me at some point that she had contemplated suicide and when that happened, I began to hear it again and again in different chat rooms, different forums where people who are newly diagnosed contemplate suicide. And one of the things that I wanted to get out there was, hey, this isn't a big deal. Like, this is how I'm living. It's manageable. It's treatable. But my word wasn't good enough. So one of the things that I wanted to do here was just get as many stories out there as humanly possible and get medical professionals on here to say it's not that bad it's treatable it's manageable it's common so that's what i'm hoping that we were able to accomplish here with this episode with dr bruckle here at total access urgent care uh how can people find you here in st louis uh we're our whole goal is to be uh have an office in every every neighborhood here in st louis um but if you're sure not if you're not sure where we're located uh, you can go to our website which is www.talk T-A-U-C.com. That's totalaccessurgentcare.com. And uh, and find the location nearest you. Perfect. Thanks so much for your time, Dr. Bruckle. Nice to meet you. Thanks so much. That's us shaking hands at the end. That concludes this episode of Something Positive for Positive People. Please, if you haven't already, review, rate, like, share the show on whatever podcast player you listen to. I can be found on social media at H on my chest. Till next time, stay positive.